and welcome to None of My Business. I'm Michael Jacket. This is a business podcast, but mainly it's about people and their business. It's driven by my own curiosity and passion for learning from every conversation. Nathan Lutit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jacko. Good to be here. This is a, a new experience for you. Have you done a podcast before? I've done a couple. Have you? They were, they were a bit old now, probably a couple of years. Where did you do them? So they're really cool, interesting young bloke um, did a podcast called The Subtle Disruptors. That was kind of cool about, you know, subtly disrupting different industries. So oh, yeah. I've, um, I've obviously jumped into a few different things, albeit always linked across, um, across sort of disciplines, if you will. But yeah, um, always sort of disrupting in a, in a subtle way. So I did one there, done a few other recordings and things, but not, not any of this professional. This is, this oh, is well, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I look good because of the Commons setting me up with a nice studio. It's but a nice room. And your uh, hair is very good. Is it? Very well, good. I've been wearing hats. I don't so. have much for those who can't see. I've got nothing and Jacko's got a lot. We'll take a photo after. <laughs> um, so, mate, as I just sort of was briefly explaining, um, this is uh, a bit of an experimentation for me, uh, an experiment, mm. I should say, um, because I, I don't have an end goal. I don't have an end game. I'm just doing – I'm going to record episodes – invite people to come in, the ones that choose to accept, I'll sit down with them for an hour or 45 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever they can give me. Yep. Um, but yeah, it was all about a bit of um, professional development for me. I did some coaching last year um, with a girl, Brooke, who is actually was based at the Commons, but since COVID, she's gone back to New Zealand. Yep. Um, and it was, a, it was a great experience in terms of just opening up the field of vision in terms of you know why? Why can't I do things that I that um oh, that ha- that are part of my own sort of strategic plan and mm. strategic vision? So this is one of them. And and podcasting, um, my brother does a lot of it, and so I'd watched him do it over the last couple of years, and they're, they're, they've nearly hit a thousand episodes. Mm. But um, less about him and more about me. It was it runs it, the family. You both sound good on on this. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it was. I also have a, a tendency to um, to sort of overthink and overanalyze, and so doing the podcast was something where it's, you actually can't get the experience by thinking about it and reading about it and listening. You have to just turn the mic on and start talking to people. Paralysis and by analysis is exactly. something that I probably didn't quite understand until recent years. It's an interesting, yeah, interesting topic in its own right. People are scared, I think, sometimes to just jump in and do versus um, those who do jump in and do get traction and move at pace. That's not always right. perfectly, but that's probably not the point. Yeah. Particularly with things like a podcast. podcast. Yeah, totally. And yeah. I was sort of, I've been thinking, like pondering that a lot recently because there's, you know, there is the approach, you know, just get in and do it, which mm. is great. Mm. But um, it also needs to be balanced, I think. And I, and I actually enjoy finding people and leaders within industry or business or whatever it might be mm. that sort of do out, like come out and say, no, I, I tend to take my time with certain decisions and certain things that I do because that's kind of, well, it kind of, it makes me feel good because that's how I am. But mm. having said all that, I think that something like this, you can't get the experience you need unless you just dive deep in. Dive into head first, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's that's what it is for me in terms of it's it's exploring um, um, something that is, you know, somewhat uh, a, an unknown. It's putting sort of throwing myself in the deep end. Mm. I, I would want to get to a point where I can just sort of send out um, invitations to people that I don't know. Um, it's if you if you'd missed it, it's called None of My Business. So it's a business podcast. 
Um, but I'm more interested in the people behind the business. I'm sure. more interested in the stories of those people and how they've got there. And um, you and I have talked a lot over the years. You and I have known each other for, oh, I had that number in my head the other day. What would it be? It would be like 15 years? Uh, 12? Uh, well, 2009, no. I'd suggest. So we're now at 2019, 2020. Oh. So it must no, be it's been years. before 2009. Because I started uni in 2004. Oh, yeah, and then I f- and I failed, so then I had <laughs> half a year off. Came back in two thousand five. I reckon I met you two thousand five six. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Upon reflection, probably two thousand six. Yeah, yeah so it would have been my sounds better, mate. Let's go with career. thirteen, yeah, fourteen. Like, years. It's a good number. It's a long number. It's good. Uni wasn't for you though. No, no. It's funny because I I probably found my groove in my final year of uni. I was probably just an average mm. student during uni, but then I reckon I became better than average because I found my thing in my fourth year. Oh, on your time. fourth, yeah. See, I didn't even finish the third yeah. because I got that job yeah. out of yeah. third, which kind of, I mean, it was just that it was inevitable almost, mm. you know, that I wasn't going to finish it mm. in the classical in the classic way. But that, yeah, you, I remember talking to you about what you were doing in that honors year, mm. and it was much. It was almost. I, I remember actually having that thought, like, oh fuck, that actually sounds like a year that I would have probably done well in. You would have, yeah, because it was more industry facing yeah. and. Wasn't it? Yeah, well, I'd risk getting this whole podcast off off topic, but it's an interesting thing because it was a practice-based honours year, and that sounds nice in theory, mm. and a lot sort of talk about that, but it genuinely was. It was essentially industry-based projects. For those listening, it's obviously we were doing product design or industrial design, so developing products, and I guess it was a first chance for us to actually design for a real client with a real budget, with a real timeline, and as basic mm. as that sounds, you get to put everything into practice. And that's when I learned that my strength was actually people. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily designing. Mm. It was probably the logistics and the and the deliveries and the and the timing and the meetings and the scheduling and the and the relationships and I just didn't realise that until I got to that fourth year and got a shot and suddenly I went, Oh, that's my thing and then yeah. started my first business. So yeah, but I before that I was I would have said I was an average student. Average. Mm. Genuinely. I love that you've said that. We'll circle back to Ooh. that. Um so would you would you say you're experimenting with anything at the moment? Can you reframe – reframe's a bit of a thing for me at the moment, but mm. can you reframe anything you're doing and sort of under the con, under the guise of an experiment just to release some of the expectation or, you know, is there anything that you're doing at the moment like that? Yeah. I mean, look, I'd probably say my life's a bit of an experimentation. Good one. I mean, I probably – you know, I've changed tact must be over two years ago now, completely different industry, mm. and, and it's probably for another time, but that's changing from – an industry that you love and have a genuine passion for and literally just saying, time to go do something different and go yeah. into sales. So that, that in itself is probably me. But yeah. um, right now, probably playing a fair bit more on social media. Mm. So something that I hadn't done a lot of. I wasn't yeah. active in it. I hadn't thought too much about it, but I went and got into the, the real estate space and it has a name. It has a generalization associated to it. And I've sort of loved grabbing it and sort of bucking the trend with it. But um, yeah, experimentation, probably mm. actively building up some – some uh, content for socials, yeah. which I'll um, probably push pretty hard within about the next week or two, mm. and really go hard after that. I just think it's you can reach more in a in a minute or a, an hour or a day on socials, and and probably where I play in the real estate space and sales space, it's probably still stuck in a bit more of the old school, yeah. the sort of cold calling, prospecting type type world. So, yeah. yeah, experimentation around socials and just still still uh, going after the unknown. Yeah, I um. I hear you on that one because, as you know, I've been in sort of a sales project management, whatever we call it. Mm. It's ultimately sales role for, mm. I don't know, six or eight years. 
Um, and I'm sort of at that same point where I'm really looking as I as I as I look down the barrel of a another sort of shift in my career, um, looking at what I'm sort of sick of that. I'm really sort of tired, and it it just fills me with that whole lot of level of uncom un, you know uncom makes me uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, about that sort of sales process, that classic sales process of calling someone with an expectation. They know what they know. You want something out of them, but you're trying to disguise it as not. You know, and so, um, and I think this environment that we're in, where we're doing a lot of non face to face at the moment, we're doing a lot of video. So people are spending more time looking at screens. I think social media is becoming um, just more present in people's lives because it's you know it's where people are doing the majority of their marketing and whatever. It's funny. I just I'll grab you on that one. It's funny you say that you sort of it made you feel uncomfortable because I I obviously left product design and, and R&D, um, albeit I love it, and went across to sales. And I jumped into real estate and, geez, there's just not many sales jobs where people cringe more. And you say real yeah. estate and you say sales and you just – you can see what people are thinking. They're not even yeah. saying anything. You can see what they're thinking. I've actually loved that because yeah. it's – it's almost despised sometimes. People just mm. don't like real estate agents, and, and that's not fair because it is a generalisation. But what I learned was it's just the approach. So what you said about getting on the phone and having an expectation and they know you're there to sell. Yeah. I've come into this whole gig just – I'm just trying to help people. And yeah. I know it sounds so um, – It's simple, but that's the reframing. And it's almost a bit – it's a bit corny. Are oh, you just saying you're there to help? I mean, you've got to sell. Yeah, I've got to sell. That's my job. I'm there to yeah. sell. But – the sale comes from just helping, yep. just understanding what are you after, what do you need. I'm just there to provide options. So mm. it's so simple for me and mm. because I don't come from that world, it doesn't come across salesy from what they yeah. tell me anyway. So yeah, yeah. it's really funny. I started off feeling quite uncomfortable, the typical cold calling and chasing leads and all of that sort of lingo. Yeah. Um, and then I, it just turned out to be more relationship. I'm going to stop you there because yeah. I want to get to that. So um, we, uh, we've known each other for a number of years, as we mm. just established. Mm -hmm. um, we went to, we started at uni together. You, um, you, I know this may not have been the natural, the progression, but anyway, you ended up working within the uni system. Mm. Yeah. Um, what, what was that like? Like what was on reflection now that you've kind of come out of that, you've done a few things in that same time and after that on reflection what was that environment like you know was it inspiring and fast and were you learning a lot or, or was it like bureaucratic and political and mm. was it hard to get momentum and was it slow you know like what was your it's a good question um it was both mm. it was both it was it was all the things that probably private sector mocks the educational university space for and that it, it was it could be slow and there could be a lot of red tape, but it wasn't necessarily my experience um, because we'd created a team from scratch. And I guess because we were winning projects that had a dollar value attached yeah. to them, we could run it at speed. You almost worked actually, you, you're not your typical university employee. No. Like you worked in a division that was specifically designed to go and win like private sector type work. Correct. Yeah. yeah. It was an R&D R&D team that was about connecting private sector with, with the university sector. So, yeah. so what's the benefit, what's the overarching sort of top line benefit to the university in implementing a team to do that? What are they Without gaining? Without doubt, it's a direct link to, to the industry. So if you want to say that we're going to educate people 
in a topic, well, unless you're directly tied into that industry to understand what's happening at the coalface, firsthand, up-to-date, live information, it sort of it becomes challenging to argue that you're actually providing the most relevant information. Mm. So the benefit to the uni was probably that direct link into the industry. Because yeah. then came out of that industry opportunities for students to go and do placements or work there. Mm. Um, it, it meant that you were suddenly publishing information around the university that was live and current, things that we as a team were doing on the coalface that then did feedback into degrees. So we were almost like a commercial outfit sitting within a university, which meant the link to the uni was, was what I just mentioned, but the link to the private sector was getting access to those, those yeah. researchers. And so, your, so your team sat within the what, what would you call that that area of the of Swinney like it was like very much the fabric the manufacturing and the design and the product and that yeah sort of so the unis have I guess their faculties so it was the yeah. Centre for Design Innovation sat within the Faculty of Health Arts and Design it's just a grouping of disciplines yeah um, so really within that design and manufacturing space so the reason that I ask that question is w- within that same faculty say in health. And arts, would they did they have the same sort of team set up that were more that were industry facing? No, no, we were probably we were probably yeah breaking the mold with this. So mm-hmm. you know, typically, and and I'm quite I'm quite brutal about it now. Typically, unis hadn't. You know, it's not fair because they are trying, but typically they hadn't really. Um, operate in that commercial space um, in areas like design. Mm. Um, I guess without being too too blunt, it, in the past design was a little bit fluffy. Yeah. Um, but the reality was that Australia's become a real hub for design yeah. and for uh, niche product development and, and, and I guess more niche manufacturing. Mm. And just keeping on the front foot is, is something you, you have to have these sort of R&D teams in place where they do have a link to industry to sort of make it relevant and feedback into the uni and adjust mm. course content, and make sure that what you're teaching and what you're practising is all relevant to current operation in industry. So, yeah, it certainly wasn't common. And no, the other areas didn't have these sorts of teams set up. I think um, areas like... Medicine have always been quite good at having a good link into the real world and industry yeah. and, and some of the sciences and certainly at Swinburne um, Aviation, you know, they're, they're big for that. And engineering, I mean, the university, Swinburne Uni, is, is known for its engineering department. So those sorts of areas definitely had um, these sorts of teams, but we were quite new in that faculty and certainly very new, in I think, in the country for design. Was there – like, I know that. Like, I, I feel – I don't know where this is going, but I, I feel like Australia being quite, I hate using this word, but innovative and on the front line of, you know, developing new techniques and, and manufacturing or whatever. Mm. I feel like that, particularly right now, like that's a huge thing for us to to focus on, you know, R&D as, an, as, a, as a nation and putting our smarts into being world leaders in that. Do the do the governments identify the universities as pla- like as places where they need to watch for opportunity? You know, yeah, it's a good question. And yeah, I would say they do from a design and R and D space. I'd say there's actually dedicated areas within the government, or I guess dedicated streams of funding that can enable this sort of activity. So that's always been the problem: is you can you can get a you can get a, um, a university to focus on a project, but it always comes back to all well, who's funding it, and, mm-hmm. and dollars only go so far. And so, therefore, you can see how the universities have to pick and choose and prioritise where their funding goes. So, if you can get government funding in, mm-hmm. well, then suddenly you can start working on projects that that before had to sit on the back burner. So there are yeah, there's certainly governments pushing that initiative, particularly the link between private sector and university. Yeah. In fact, the, the way universities are funded completely changed, sort of. It must be five years ago now. Mm. Um, 
you know, typically it was measured on on academic output, PhD completions and all those sorts of things, whereas it very quickly became around dollars brought in. Now, you'd find the research is going to argue against that, saying, well, it shouldn't be about dollars and projects mm. and commercial linkage. Um, but then you find the people who are more commercially minded understanding that, well, at the end of the day, the university needs funds to operate these campuses and these equipments and these labs and get these world-leading researchers in. So yeah. it's this fine marriage between the two that has to, has to work. But I think mm. we probably saw, in my opinion, the academic system lead too far into the research and not enough linkage into commercial. But yeah. again, that's just from my my understanding of probably the design disciplines um, within the unis. Mm. But yeah, certainly certainly focus on it now from government. And I feel design is a pretty unique environment and space to work within too, because just the nature of it, the nature of design, and where I actually found my my place within it was just from a purely like a problem solving perspective you know and so i think that that in itself just leads innovation and leads r&d and leads to outcomes that you know conducive to that sort of stuff couldn't agree more i think people un- like, I, th- I think a lot of people don't understand what design is because yeah. it is so broad yeah. but we were in industrial design which is you mm. know product design or product development if you can be a good or a decent product designer your entire gig as you said is a problem solver and so again it can get a bit fluffy but if you link that to any sort of business activity Mm. having that mindset where you can actually think differently it's actually extremely valuable and that's why i could actually take my skill set across different industries because it wasn't about designing i wasn't the aesthetic designer who made the car look incredible i wasn't the the best technical person around the engineering of a part for manufacture but Mm. what i was good at is just thinking differently and that's actually pretty hard to do in fact i don't think you can often train that Mm. So that's where the creatives play a real role in innovation as a total. Well, topic. it's like in MBAs these days; they're doing design thinking as a major, Correct. as a major subject. Yeah, and challenging. Like they find it hard. I, I taught directly into the MBA. Yeah, right. Um, at Swinburne Uni, and it was amazing because you had these really, you know, you might have these really smart accountants, or you might have a, a great BDM that came from a, a lifelong career in, in a space and they come mm. in and start to sort of want to, I guess, upskill and a part of it is design thinking. Yeah. And it just blows their mind that um, there may not be the answer there right now. We'll have to ask lots of different questions to try and get to the solution and it's probably going to be something you never thought of. It's, it yeah. was really intriguing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you listen to Mark Burris's podcast. He runs a podcast called Mentor. I do and I met the man a few weeks back. Did you? Yeah. What did you why did you meet him? He's linked um, really close to the founder of Geocon, big developer in Canberra. Oh, yeah. Um, and we uh, we help people with property all over the country. So Geocon oh, actually, probably really dominate in the Canberra space. Yeah. And they're a pretty great developer, and yeah, Mark certainly um, rates them, and and certainly is um, is keen to obviously talk about quality solutions, and he feels Geocon's one of them. So yeah, we had mm. a, a little industry night a few weeks back, and um, yeah, certainly a motivating guy. Yeah, he's smart, smart. Yeah, Very I know. Sharp. Well, you just can't you can't help but kind of respect his time that he's put, that he's done, you know, and he and he was around some pretty big thinkers of Kerry Packer and the like, you know, back in the day. If they're getting behind someone like that, you, he's got something. Yeah. Um, he made a comment. I reckon it could have been on that Geocon podcast right. when he was in um, interviewing the director of that, whatever mm. his name is. Um, uni doesn't teach skills, only knowledge. So, in se- so essentially skills you learn by doing once you get out of that university environment. What... You, having been literally in the university environment for so, so many years, would you agree with that or would you have a different view on that? 
I couldn't agree more, and I would encourage more of that conversation. Yeah. It's very controversial. Mm. You're essentially, you know, we're indirectly having a go at education as we see it. But I really like that. I think we're, I think it's, um, I think yeah, I, I certainly learnt and developed a lot more at a much faster rate in the first year of being at a university than I ever did at university. So what I see university as is an area to get the fundamentals, but I would encourage everyone to get into the doing Mm -hmm. faster rather than later. So I've been tempted for years to do an MBA, Mm, but every time I go to think about it and do it, I I get every single business person who who I I talk to, whether it's mentor or, or rates me or I rate them or I just having a conversation with, mm. they almost all say, they just keep doing what you're doing. You're yeah. learning it out there. You're doing it. Yeah. Um, so there's this natural thing we're taught, which is that education is key and that we need to go to university and, and do all that. But I'll tell you now, now that I'm years and years out of uni, I would pay for street smarts over and above what I would for, for education smarts. Absolutely. Um, every day of the week, without yeah. a doubt, I wouldn't even question it. So I think I've got a lot of respect for the uni, though. I think it's got so much to offer. Mm. I think it has people, researchers, professors, equipment, labs, experience. There's no doubt that, it ha- yeah, that it's got the right elements. It's just how it delivers that, like what and what are the outcomes. And I think that's the challenge of big institutions is that they get a bit stuck and they get a bit like 20 years ago, you know, and, and that's why I got so interested, you know, when you talked about your, that last role you did at the uni, which was that very much industry facing. And I was like, well, this is, this is a clear pivot in the direction of trying to yeah, move away from what a university was there for totally. 20 years ago. And you can see why without being um, too biased, you can see why Swinburne's changed and grown and ranked so much higher as a uni because they have had so much focus from the doing mm. um, and it's allowed them to be more relevant and offer more industry-facing uh, and industry-related courses and, and you can, I can just see how they've grown because they have been so conscious of it. But I certainly... Yeah, I'm certainly very appreciative and respectful of what they do, but I, I can see what happens. If I was to have stayed there, mm. within years I become a bit stale because yeah. I'm not practising as much and therefore yeah. I don't have all the live at the coalface experience to be imparting mm. to my students because I did a fair bit of lecturing yeah. because I still had my design consultancy. I could literally learn thing one day, one, learn something one day, I should say, and then deliver it in a lecture the next. Yeah, and there was just no better connection. But I can see what would have happened if I did get stuck within the uni, and it's no disrespect for those who are in the university system full-time for their entire career. Yeah. You can see how if you don't have that industry link um, on an ongoing basis, you by sheer nature become yeah. out and, of date. And that's probably why the research element within a university environment became so strong is because they knew that short of having lecturers and staff that, you know, part-time in industry, part-time in the lecture theatre, you know, if they wanted their good lecturers to be there full-time, they had to have information flowing through the uni that allowed them to learn about Mm. what was going on Mm. in industry. Definitely. Otherwise, how do they know? You don't know what you don't know. Definitely. And it's amazing because it literally affects every single cohort graduating yeah so it's sad to think if you don't have a good group of teachers who have got great industry knowledge Mm. then that cohort by sheer nature is probably going to be lacking a fair bit now Mm. the good thing for everybody in the system is that's okay get your degree get your foundation your framework get out there and start learning it's no problem but i think we could do it better so i get quite animated and quite excited about it because i think what they could be with better links to industry um would just be a huge benefit to you are there i remember are there pathways improving 
from your degree into industry because that's always a challenge. Like I remember when we went through, like we maybe had 70 kids in our ID year and 20 of them might have got jobs, 15 if that. Yeah. Like in that first, first second year. Yep. Like there's people now you still see, like they're becoming, you know, executive assistants. Yep. And they've done an industrial design course. Yeah. I mean, that's like, the Is case. there any improvement yeah, you know, there, there certainly is during the time that I was there, not because of me, uh, literally, I mean, I, I might have helped, but I think it just goes in waves. Yeah. So the the more industry folk you have teaching, um, whether it be sessionally or, or part time within a degree, probably the better links you get. And mm. if we open up doors around job placements and, you know, if you've got a gun lecturer and they work at the best design consultancy around the corner and they're teaching the top five students, well, mm. guess who's getting a job? Yeah. If they've got a place, they know who they want, so they just handpick them. Yeah. So, yeah, it's getting better, but you can see how if you don't have those good sessional lecturers that are coming in from industry, well, then suddenly the linkages aren't as good. Mm. That's just one example. But I would say, yeah, I saw it get really good, yeah. um, but it can quickly drop off too. Yeah. Mm. It's who's driving that. Exactly. Who's driving that within the new... Which goes all the way to the top. Yeah. And yeah. universities' priorities change. Yeah. And government severely affects that in terms of how universities are funded. So right now, industry and industry linkage and dollars brought in mm. to the university from industry, that's a big driver. Yeah. And yeah. there is a commercial reality behind all that too. Mm, totally. Yeah. Okay, so you moved into, uh, well, you, you started Vault. Mm. Um, was that the was that what you were talking about when you first year out of uni? Did you start that first year out of uni? I started that in our final year, fourth year uni. Yeah. Mm. Um, what did you learn about yourself running that for, how many years was that? Nine years. Nine years, yeah. Mm, with my business partner, Matt. That was, was a good run. It was a great run. Jeez, what did I learn? That's hard. That's nine years. Not only nine years of running your first business with no business experience, but nine years of, of going from your final year of uni. I mean, you just yeah. change the person so much too. Totally. What did I learn? Hard to summarise. I mean, it was a lot of like, oh, mate, remember the shit that we were doing at the university, <laughs> bloody... Um, One o'clock in the workshop. morning, 3D printing parts yeah, and moulding like, things. And, oh God. There's a lot of like that. <laughs> there's a lot of that stuff when you're coming out of uni because you're like, I'm just going to put into practice all of the skills I've just learned over the last four years. Yep. Which is awesome. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily, it's not scalable. Oh, look, I could just go on for hours about what I learned because there's nine years to capture. But I think, mm. yeah, I think I developed as a person to understand that you, everyone's so different, but we probably. We went out and we thought, well, we're a couple of guys who love designing. We can make stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's just create a business name and off we go. Yeah. And that's how easy it is to start a business. Everyone yeah. who has a business, it doesn't mean much until you actually start doing. So we started it and away we went. And one minute we're designing furniture, the next minute we're doing some lighting, the next minute we're doing 21st invites on the laser cutter. Like mm. it was just so varied and we we're just a couple of guys mm. working out of the garages trying to make a buck. Totally. But we didn't have the financial pressures yet because we didn't have a space and we, yeah. you know, we didn't have high overheads. In fact, we had nothing. Mm-hmm. But before you knew it, within years, we had our, our first and then our second premises and then we're scaling up. And before you know it, we had, yeah. you know, a thousand square meters in North Melbourne, in Melbourne here. It was, mm. it was pretty cool. But we evolved a lot as people and as a business. And then we probably didn't find our groove of what we were offering. Yeah like really defined it and yeah. therefore had focus, which we found out you need mm. rather than just doing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, it probably took us until, to be honest, five years. Yeah. We probably went three years of finding our feet, learning all the basics in business. I can reflect now and understand what we were doing, but it was so inefficient. Mm. So I learned a big thing about, um, and I can't explain this clearly enough, just the importance of a business plan. Yeah. Just 
it sounds so typical, but just seriously understanding what is it you want to do? Yeah, what are you trying to achieve? When do you want to do it yeah. by? Yeah. What's it going to cost you? Just all the basics. We didn't ever had it in place. Yeah, totally. But I think also in your defence, it's hard when you do have when you're doing such a broad range of stuff, mm. and you and that and any one of those things could become a like a niche, unique kind of business model in itself. But mm. you then don't want to close yourself off because you've got this other opportunity over here. And that's where inexperience kicked in because we saw exactly what you were saying. Yeah, we're getting excited by it. Yeah. Getting new spaces, we're buying, you know, our first fridge, filling it with the beers for Friday afternoon, we're yeah, employing yeah. A, a grad, you know, we're doing all these things and geez, it was exciting. But you're right, because we're getting pulled from pillar to post because, yeah. well, geez, people love that, so let's do yeah. more of that. Yeah, and it's people hard to say that. no. Yeah, so we just keep doing, yeah. whereas we found within about five years that we started to really understand that we were getting a bit of a name for that last minute, like lean on Matt and Nathan at Vault if you need something done last minute. Yeah. Not a great thing to be known for, but just yeah. we thought it was cool. Like yeah. I remember and you, you made got the introduction to, to shine production, <laughs> yeah, to do the MasterChef trophy. Well, we still now see it on the TV. Yeah. Well, God, we, we manufactured that thing in a, in a week. Yeah. Now, I was literally machining that brass plate for that, that MasterChef <laughs> ring um, on the 24th of December. Like all yeah. the manufacturers closed down, yeah. but if anyone was going to do it, it was Matt and Nathan at, at, um, at Vault. So we, we just... We just networked and relationships, and again, yeah. I just I was learning that that was me. We could get things done, and I think that's a, it's a, it's an awesome like reputation to have in that like I, I for that exact reason is why I, when I, someone asked me who was on the production team and I said who can do this, I said just go talk to Nathan. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's an awesome reputation to have, but it's re, it's difficult. It's tough. It's it's it's. Um, it's labor. It means it's labor intensive. It's and and then on the other side of that, when I think about turning that into a business, it's hard to scale because you can't find people that are like you, you know, and willing to put in the same amount of effort. Willing that's got this, you know, like it's just. I was just as you was talking, then I was thinking of someone who's kind of done it well, and on the flip side of it is the reason, Jasper Baruda, who yeah, really well, you know, like, he, but he's done it well because he's just it's him. And the thing about him, I don't know him or his business well enough. I know I know relatively well to talk about it right now, but it's clear that he's found what he does and he sticks in his lane. So he's started a business that offers similar probably experience, you know, working in design. Um, he travelled a bit with it, um, you know, whatever. But he started a business where now he just fabricates whatever, you know, whatever it is that comes at him. And a lot of it's, a lot of it's shop, um, like shop displays and... Um, um, point of sale displays. Mm. I, sh I shouldn't stumble on that. I did it for fucking six years. <laughs> I'm still doing it. Um, but he just knows what he can and can't do. So he's willing to say, no, nah, I can't do that. It's either too big, it's not enough, or I would need to employ three other people and I'm not, not prepared to do it. I've got to be able to do it out of my workshop that I've totally, built at home. Totally. You know, so he... Yeah, and, and I, but I think... Scalable's the right word that you said there. Ours wasn't scalable. Yeah. And it, it made it tough because it wore on us. Like, by the end of it, you know, I, I'm happy to say it out loud, and, and Matt and I have debriefed on it, and, and I think it's just such a good bit of a lesson to, to impart with everyone. But we got to a point where we were finding it frustrating and we are getting irritated with each other, and nine years had passed, and we hadn't scaled it to anything. Yeah. Yeah. When I say we hadn't, we were pretty proud. You know, one year we'd earn a good bit of coin, the next year we wouldn't. Yeah. And we didn't really know why. We didn't Before you and I were talking about databases, because we're now in different spaces, we understand the importance of understanding your database. And, mm. you know, our level of experience back then was so minimal. So we were sitting there nine years, I'm going, what are we doing? Like, mm. 
are we, are we earning enough here to make all this effort worthwhile? We'd gone yeah. and pigeoned ourselves into this space of delivering on these hard deadline projects. And although we could deliver, as you said, it was us. It was us delivering it. Yeah. We couldn't scale it. We had at one point, we had five grads working for us and that was great. But mm. again, we couldn't scale it and we didn't and also know why. also you can't forecast it. That's no. the other bit too because you can't – it's not consistent enough. You'd, it's The projects are very project-based, mm. so it's very hard to scale and also forecast that. So you can't sit down with a potential investor or with a potential business partner or you know with you and Matt alone just on your own mm. and say, we're going to try and do these things in order to be here in three, five, and ten years' time. Like, mm. it's a very difficult thing to do with that kind of business. And there's a couple of points there. One is we start off talking about paralysis via analysis. And, mm. and so I wouldn't say that anyone spends ages trying to plan and forecast and yeah. get it right because it's not going to happen. Get in there and do it. But then you don't want to underestimate the first part and just get in and do it and, and then get to what we did, which was nine years of busting our ass, mm. having a great time, doing some cool stuff, but essentially – dissolving at the end of the day because we got tired yep. of putting in massive hours yep. and having lumpy cash flow. Mm. Um, but I'll say it now, I'd never, I, I don't regret it. No. And I'm so grateful for it because it taught me so much, but we could have been smarter. And that was my number one lesson to come back to your question is, yeah. is what do we learn? I, I learned about, about, yeah, understand what you do well, sticking in your lane and, and, and going after efficiencies. I'm a big one now on efficiencies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah being, but I mean that, that, that only comes with experience, totally. being able to pinpoint, you know, pinpoint what the, what's worth putting the investment and time into because you know how that turns out, you know, with your experience, you know where that can lead to. Um, anyway, hindsight's a beautiful thing. Oh, and I reckon the thing that sums it up just briefly before you move on is, is MVP, your minimal viable product. Yeah. I think that, that premises across anything is so good. I love it now. I'd rather jump in, yeah. go hard and fast and fail fast. Yeah. And then move on to the next thing. Yeah. So I said I certainly would take a little bit from every lesson I've learned to try and do it again, which I haven't done since. So that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> Fail fast. Um, so you've changed career. Yeah. You've um, you've gone. You've done a. F you've done an industry complete industry change. Um, I feel like I've done. I feel like I've done that a couple of times. Mm. Um, yeah, I've done that a couple of times, mm. um, but I've always found that kind of underlying consistency. Yep. And when you said at the at the start of this, um, you you realised going into that fourth year at uni that what your consistent what your consistency was was the people side of things. Mm. I'm exactly the same. I think mm. that's probably why we've you know we've had a you know, good friendship over mm. the years and mm. we've always seen eye to eye and whatever yep. in terms of our views and whatever. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I suppose my question was going to be about what skills do you have or have you learned which has allowed you to have such a drastic industry change? And I think it's just that people thing. I think you're a people person. Mm. But I said, but was there, was there anything that you sort of think back on and go, now that you're doing real estate, um, in sales, mm. you know, is there anything that you kind of go, I, I was setting up, whether you knew it or not at the time, I was sort of setting up for a move into this, into this space? Maybe a different answer. Not anything specific around what I was doing um, in design, but I think something I've always worked on and I think I'm acknowledging it more and more as I get older is probably personal development. Yeah. So probably a, something that I value so high is probably self-awareness, Mm. all those sorts of things that whole that whole line it's not the tangible it's 
I've become very self-aware. I think I've always been relatively, um, you know, I don't like saying it's a bit uncomfortable, but I think my emotional intelligence is, is pretty good and, yeah. and sort of people tend to say that to me and, yeah. and I've realised that that's become a real strength. So people wrap that up in the word, you're a good people person, but yeah. I've realised what that means <coughs> and actually breaking that down and clarifying that has given me an amazing and amount of confidence when it comes to dealing with things. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like I, I, just, I now realise it doesn't matter what industry I sit in. It's irrelevant. No. Yeah, absolutely. The thing we call people skills, this clarity over me, is what allows me to go in and do well. Yeah. So I just I've become so comfortable with people with things that people find uncomfortable. Mm. I've become so clear on on why something isn't working and how we need to address it. Yeah. But no matter the people involved and whether they're a sensitive individual or whether they're a really, um, whether they're a rude person or a positive one or a negative one, it's just irrelevant. I just feel so mm. comfortable in what I'm doing because I've just got to know me. And yeah. that can sound a little bit fluffy for some people, but that is my biggest strength now. I'm so comfortable with me. Yeah. I have such self-awareness that I tend to be able to just manipulate and mould myself into whatever situation I find mm. myself in. I mean, it does sound a bit fluffy, but I, I think people are getting more used to that. And that's what I, like at the top of this podcast, I said that, part of the catalyst for me doing this was around the coaching that I'd done. Mm. Have you done any life coaching or executive coaching at all? No training, but I've certainly sort of, yeah, coaching and mentoring some people in, in my career. It'd be interesting to to do, like to undertake some coaching mm. on you, you know, mm. where you have, because, um, and I'd love to, if you ever do that, I'd love to get your thoughts on it Definitely. because it allows, it's just an extension of exactly what you've just said. Right. It allows you to dig deeper and what's behind you know like we're all we all operate off habits and intuition and past experiences mm. and you know and sometimes those things we don't even they're not even on our consciousness they're they're si sitting behind um and this and life coaching and and you know can depend on who does it and who facilitates it but it's just a really interesting exploration of of that, you know, of like I love the idea of it. I've certainly got the intention to do some of that too. Uh, I've grown up a bit around it too. My old man was is very much a, you know, you, you're, um, you know, in my opinion, you're gun, you know, business mentor and coach. Yeah. And then I've got a, a mentor in this industry who's essentially taught me everything I know and, and why I was able to make the jump into real estate. And, and I, I talk to him daily and, and he's, um, he's a big motivator of mine. He probably doesn't even realize it, but yeah, mm. I'm surrounded by those people who have taken me under their wing and I've now become a bit like them. And I think a lot of it's about asking the right questions. It's about yeah. shutting up and asking the right questions. Totally. And, listening. Yeah. What did your dad, what did your dad do? His background, I guess, you know, generally business, but he, he sort of held quite high sort of CEO roles within different organisations. So mm -hmm. he spent a lot of time in, um, in freight to start with and oh, then yeah. was with the um, Australian Wool Corporation for a long time at quite a high level. Mm. Um, spent quite a bit of time in, in Canberra and, and in New Zealand and then he was in dairy. So um, he worked for the Victorian dairy industry mm. and um, was a big part of sort of the things, of, things like sales of Big M and all yeah, those right. big brands. So he was a part of big growth but also um, big redundancy programs and mm. the typical high high-level business person and then um, after dairy he went into corrections and he still plays in that correction space now so dad's I guess now he works for himself rather than for anyone else yeah and he um, he tends to work quite a lot in that in that correction space helping private entities take over um, things like prisons yeah so, right yeah he, interesting uh, yeah he advises on all of that and he's a yeah, he's, he's very good the older I get the more I, I realize I'm like him so he's a, yeah. he's a pretty um, He's very good, as I said, at asking the right questions. Yeah. Very good at being quiet. I'm still probably a little bit young and enthusiastic and yeah, I'm probably totally. talking a bit too much, whereas he's really good at just shutting up yeah. and asking good questions. I, I can't remember where I've, where I've got this 
little snippet from, but it's something I'm reading at the moment. Um, just talks about that, like be the quietest person in the room until you have to say something. You know, because you because let every because there's so much. Um, oh, it's coming to me as I'm talking, but there's so much. There's a need to like to feel to dead air, air mm. you know, to feel, and whether that be in making a pitch perfect, that's the book, yep. whether it be in, and it's just all about, um, you'd love it actually. I'm only halfway through, but I already know you'd love it. It's all about um, delivering, you know, that communication, whether it be in a, in, a, in a speech, you know, at a wedding or whether it be in, in a business environment or whatever just talking, networking, full stop, you know, like just the ability to deliver what you need to say with clarity mm. and um, not getting overwhelmed by needing it, the message to come out in a certain way or having whatever. Um, I'm smirking as you say it because I, I get excited by what you're saying because I, I get it, I feel it. Yeah. I, I went from being at uni, standing up and presenting, on, you know, we'd have our concept presentations, you're yeah. pitching in front of a class of, you know, 40. Yeah. I remember just shitting myself. Oh, absolutely. Whereas now, I just genuinely relish the chance to stand up and present yeah. to a group of people. On Especially anything. if it's something that you're passionate oh, about. I or just love it because I just but, – but it does come back to the self-awareness piece is I'm just so comfortable now. Mm. And as you said, particularly when you know the topic and, and, you, and you're enthusiastic around it. But um, I also was smirking because although I think I'm decent at it, I'm still, I'm still at the learning curve. I'm still on the learning curve, I should say, with regards to – not the presenting, but in the meetings with higher level people, I'm yep. still that really enthusiastic, excitable guy. And so I find myself jumping in yep. and you said filling space, not because I want to fill it because I naturally am just like, oh, oh, oh and I want to, I want to, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I've got something to add yeah. here. Whereas I'm, I'm still working on it, but I'm yeah. so self-aware about it, working on just shutting up. Yep. And even if someone moves on, you can be that calm guy, which I'm used to hearing at that higher level, say, guys, just coming back to that point, I was just yeah, going to totally. add in, yeah. but I'm still working on that. So mm. it's really funny because... Because um, it's compo it's the composure. Yeah. That's the composure piece. And yep. the people that are experienced, and that's why it's interesting to hear about your dad and at that level, you know, like you don't, <laughs> you don't get people that are shooting from the hip no. when they're seasoned vets in that, yeah. in that yeah. at that level. You know, like they have a level of composure and confidence to to ultimately control where things are going, you know, and, the, and that's the key to it is like people that talk a lot feel like they're controlling the conversation, but they're not doing they're not. anything. They're not controlling anything. No. They the, think they are yeah. and everybody else knows they're not. Yeah. yeah it's funny. The one of the re major reasons I actually joined this recent company was because of the CEO. Yeah, right. And we actually sort of, you know, within the team, he probably hasn't heard this, so hopefully he can hear this, but we yeah. refer to him as very measured. Yeah. And we say, oh, damn, we're measured. Yeah, yeah. It's just so measured in conversation. Yeah. But doesn't miss anything. Yeah. Like, so detailed. Mm. Um, so measured. And I think it's, I, I think it comes part and parcel being measured and not missing anything because you're not, you know, like how many times have you been in a conversation where someone's talking so fast, throwing all these details at you? It's got, it's not about you, it's about them. And you're like, I'll, I'll struggle to remember 25% of that because, it's all. It's just too much, too fast, you know. Where if you can slow everything down and go, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get there, and you get better at cutting to the chase and stripping back some of the bullshit and whatever. But yeah, I think that just it's that that's those things go hand in hand. I agree, but I think it takes huge self awareness to get there. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't get there, and yeah. that's why you have your CEOs who are really measured because if they get it wrong, the consequences are huge. Yeah, yeah. and why you have a lot of people that can't quite get there. It's not just about this attribute mm, yeah but um this is a big part of it mm. it takes you being self-aware and working on it 
Yeah. Okay. So in um, real estate, what's what's your view on the industry? Where do you sit? You know, coming into it, you've been in a year now. A year and a half. Two years. Two years. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I, went, I worked for one of the volume builders, one of the big builders, ABN Group, who own boutique homes and home buyers yeah. centre, and uh, had a great time there. Cut my teeth really mm. there uh, in true sales. I mean, I'd done sales in that we ran a business. Well, ideally, I mean, I guess we were selling without knowing it. Yeah. But then went into proper sales, and totally. then now I'm with a um, yeah with a, a larger property group um, mm-hmm. in Melbourne who sells all over the country. There's nothing like having to sell to people. Whether you're picking up the phone, have never spoken to them before, or they're walking into a showroom, or yeah. they're whatever, you know, like it's a, it is a different level of sales, you know, and not everyone's cut out for it. Like not everyone has oh. the ability to kind of go. I think it's like goes back to what you're saying before. I've got something genuine that I want to deliver to these people, yep. um, and they and you feel it. Like you, you know, we've all bought cars before, and you know when someone's trying someone to give did. you the bloody sell, oh, the you worst, know? the worst. Um, but my opinion on the industry, yeah. It's a pretty exciting space. Yeah. yeah, you can't get in here and not not uh, not be excited. It certainly moves at a rapid rapid rate of knots, and we're very lucky to to live in the country we live in. I mean, if you if you're fortunate enough, and whether that be fortunate or you work hard or whatever it is, if you manage to buy property in your life in Australia, then you you should you should consider yourself quite lucky because I mean, there's lots of countries where that's just not going to happen. Um, so yeah, we're very lucky that this this country does well on property and it just continues to grow for the most part. Yeah. The challenge becomes how do you do better than than average? Mm. Yeah. But it's a pretty amazing market. It's personally, how do you do better than average, or as an industry, how do you do better? Than, do you manage personally, the business? How do you if you can buy a house? How do you buy something that's going to do better than yeah, the yeah, market? Because yeah. I mean, you can essentially without being too general. You you, you can you can get in almost anywhere and everywhere, and your property tends to double in Melbourne every ten years. So you're yeah. going to be okay. Yeah. It's just how do you do even better? Yeah. Um, by making sure you get the property selection right and the area right. I mean, everyone says location, location, location. So without being corny, yeah. that's sort of the, the crux of property. You've got to get the location right as well as the asset selection. So I won't go into the detail, but um, it's an exciting space, and the market's um, it's pretty amazing. Australia's property market runs almost um, purely on sentiment. So yeah, yeah, And totally. the buyers are confident, and off they go. And when they're not, they don't. But yeah. either way, it keeps going up. Not only that, Australia's wealth is off the off their the perceived value of their property investments. You know, like if people's houses are, you know, they're seeing those gains, and they and the news is reporting on you know real estate property market and you know returns and whatever. People spend more. Totally. People go out and spend more because they've got a perceived wealth. They don't necessarily – it's not coming into them in their in their bank accounts, but they're spending more. Absolutely right. That's why we've got such a big challenge on our hands. And, you know, I was listening to um, the Barefoot Investor. I subscribed to his blog or whatever they whatever he's got now. But And he was interviewing a guy. I know I don't forget his name. You'd probably heard of him, but Louis was his first name. Mm. And he's just – he's like his property guru, go-to mm. guy. Mm-hmm. And he was just talking about the, you know – What's the outlook? Look, what does it look like for investors, mm. homeowners, renters? Yep. You know, all of that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, and you know, it was a thirty-minute podcast without mm. going into all of it. it mm. You know, the the sort of what he sort of came out with, which was interesting, was he's like, don't underestimate the government's interest and ability to um, ensure to do everything they can to ensure that prop the property market doesn't fall off a cliff oh. because it's so intrinsically valuable to our economy in Australia in particular that they will do a lot of things and pull a lot of levers before they let that happen. And I think a lot, yeah, it's a look, I couldn't say it any better than that, but it's a funny one because I, I joined when was it end of 2018 
or midway through 2018, I should say, and it was when the market was really coming off. Mm. And you had people walking in the door just saying, oh, I'm just looking, I'm not going to do it, I don't know what's going to happen, the Royal Commission was on and a whole bunch of things. And people were genuinely thinking the market was just going to flop. And some people due to COVID think the market's just going to flop. But I'm just so confident it's not. And that's Mm. what Barefoot Investor there was referring to in that there's just – so much important behind importance behind construction in this in, in this country. Yeah, it's the single single biggest employer of jobs after public servants. Yeah, and so it's just too important, and that's why uh, construction didn't stop. Mm-hmm. A lot of things, most things stopped. Construction didn't stop during COVID. Yeah, um, and there's a lot of it's things that didn't stop because they just had to keep it moving. Because although it took a little bit of a hit, if you stop construction, the effect on the economy is larger than anyone could really understand. Yeah, and I think most people you can't expect them to understand. No. Property in this country just continues to go up. Yeah. Every market has its cycles. You see a dip, but the dip tends to be, let's say, a year or two or three, and then off it goes again. So mm. in my opinion, I say the same thing to everyone, whether it be seasoned investor or first-time first home buyer, when you're mentally and financially ready, you've got to just jump in. Yeah. It's just that simple. Without being complacent, mm. get it right, but um, it's, well, it's an incredible market. Yeah, and I think there's, there's, an, there's a good part about you know good, solid – investment advice, which is obviously the sort of space that you sit in. Yeah. Um, comparison to other career roles, I suppose it's pretty hard because they're pretty polar uh, or they're pretty different anyway. Mm. Um, do you, I suppose, coming out of it, do you see yourself sitting into, in, in this space for a while? Are you enjoying it? You know, not that you, you know, you're going to say, oh, no, I'm going to leave it tomorrow, but are you enjoying <laughs> it enough to go, I could build a career around this well, I can't see term? myself leaving it. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it'd, it'd be worth for context for everyone listening. I I ran the design consultancy with my business partner, Matt, and then I went out at Swinburne Uni and built that team. Mm. It's about they've, they've got to be up to sort of 20-odd now. It's a really successful yeah, wow. team. Um, and I left there because I felt I hit a ceiling yeah. at the uni. Yeah. And the option was go back out into industry and work for a consultancy or start another new design business mm. or do something different. I picked different. I went into sales. So just in terms of the comparison, they're so polar opposite because yeah. one was – building a team and managing a team. And then it was suddenly, I'm just a sole sales guy mm. in a team of 30 sales guy. I'm yep. just another rung on a ladder. Yeah. On the ladder, I should say. But I did that on purpose. I did that because I'd never actually been within a business where I was just another person. I'd mm. always either been running the business yeah. or, or, yeah, really controlling where it was going, whereas I became a nobody. And yeah. that was a big thing that I did on purpose for personal development. Mm. Um, but I probably thought I'd go and get that skill set around sales and understand how important sales is is within a business, which I really understand and appreciate now, Mm. which I didn't at all when I was in my previous role. I thought I did, but I didn't. I now get it. Um, But I thought I'd go and get that skill set and maybe I'd bring that back to the design world. Mm. And my long-term pipe dream in a way, although I'm not one to really set the big lofty goals and try and get too clear about them other than general aspirations, I probably thought I'd go and get this skill and eventually circle back and maybe be some of those people that I was presenting to as a younger guy with a business idea wanting some funding or mm. some support or guidance. I thought maybe I could actually do that and help these people yeah. run faster and avoid some of the lessons I had to go through. Yeah. Um, and although I still like the idea of it, I'm now in the property space and I can't imagine leaving it. Mm. It just moves at such pace, which excites me personally. That sort yeah. of fills my my um, needs in, in business. Yeah. Um, but also I'm just learning at such a rate of knots, and that's what I probably enjoy the most is that I went into a full-time sales role. I'm actually not in a full-time sales role now. 
Yeah, what are you doing now? I'm actually managing all our key relationships, all our stakeholders. So where we, where I am now, I buy new is a is a business that helps people identify and secure property all over the country. Yeah. And a part of that is we work with a lot of of the financial services, or I guess our professional partners, who might be brokers, accountants, financial planners. We actually help their clients find property. Mm. Um, and so, I now I guess manage a lot of those relationships between our I guess our B two B. Yeah. So, again, it's loosely sales, I guess it kind of is, but I'm not actually selling direct to our customers. I do a little bit of it to Mm. help out the team, but we're growing a team relatively quickly and it's going really well, but I'm back on the relationship front. So I buy new, I've had a little look at them just because they've actually been popping up on your LinkedIn and stuff you've liked and and whatever, but so they sit in this space of really marketing properties, partnering with developers um, and then assisting other other who, like other who in the industry to help sell their sell these properties to their customers. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, people in the game would know it as a project marketer in a way, but really, we're right. we're a you know, just to put it bluntly, we're a sales team. Yeah, we're selling properties. Yeah, direct to consumer. Yeah, um, but we just don't align ourselves with any one builder or any one developer. Yep. So, for example, when I worked at Home Buyer Centre selling new builds mm-hmm. to customers. I only had the home buyer center price range, catalog of floor plans, facade yeah. options. I could only sell their product. Yeah. Now I love that company. Had mm. a really good time there. But what I can do at I Buy New now is I can sell. We've got a, t- a panel of builders. Mm. So I don't align with one builder. I've got ten builders I can play with. Yeah. In fact, more if I wanted it. Mm. They're builders that we've vetted, so we know that when we recommend to our customer that you should go with X, or you might want to consider X and Y. Yeah. We just have confidence they can deliver, but it gives me options. Yeah. I don't not have a solution ever, but also across property types. So not only home and land mm-hmm. in what we call the green fields, the developing suburbs. Yeah. We also have townhouses in the middle ring. We mm. have apartments closer in. Yeah. And so we can sell across all three property types, which gives us a lot of scope from, from I guess, you know, uh, floor plan to price point to location mm. uh, all over the country. So It's a good agile we're, we're, position to be Oh, it's amazing. I mean, we, I just love it because it's independent. Yeah. It aligns with me. So it, I don't like the idea of peddling any one thing anyway. It just yeah. it feels like a sell. Yeah. Whereas now I can hear your brief and I'm just not going to not have a solution. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what we were saying earlier, which was having um, being in a sales role, but having the confidence that you're ge- you're providing genuinely valuable information. The, the structure of I Buy New allows you to do mm. that and have that confidence mm. because – you know, there is no, there's no, you're not sort of, there's no facade. You're genuinely saying, I've got options and we just need to understand what it is that you need and what your price point is and where you want to live and all that sort of stuff. And we'll find you something we're not tied into anyone. I think that's it. It's a really, it's a, like, and I'm putting my salesman hat on. It's a really strong and authentic position to come from um, because. Yeah, I, I mean, the, there is no – you're just not going to get pushed into a point where you're having to sell one sort of product at a certain price, at yeah. a certain margin, yep. that sort of stuff. You've summed up beautifully. And, that I mean, that's exactly why RACV became a major shareholder last year. Yeah, right. Uh, 30% of the business. Oh, wow. You don't, that, a sort of trusted brand like that doesn't do that unless you're sort of operating at a really good temperature and, and going about it the right way. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm the first to say the real estate industry has a bit of a – a funny taste, I guess, yeah. and salespeople have a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, I guess, a, a bad name, but it's, it is a generalisation. So yeah. when you come into it and then you can actually genuinely love what you do because the offering's so legit, it's so independent. Yeah. I, I literally called up my one of my first clients from I knew the other day. She's just settled 
on her um, on her block of land up in Mickleham, mm. and I helped a 19-year-old get in on a home and land, pay her first house. She's 19. She gets in at 430 grand, yeah. and the valuations come back in. She doesn't know what a valuation is, yeah. which is fine. <laughs> Absolutely part of it. We explain it all to them. But yeah. you know, I came in over and mm. to just know you found the right thing that's actually – She's paid less than market value. I'm just genuinely so pumped for her because yeah, she's totally. got in at 19. Yeah. And I know from the vowels, I've got her, just like I knew I would, I've got a really good deal. Yeah. Um, and it's no, there's no sales mm. pitch to it. It's just genuinely found her a great option to fit her requirements. So yeah. Yeah. it's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Mate, a couple of things before we finish up. Sure. Are you going to be a property investor? Already am. You are? Yeah. And do you see that being something that you'll build on? You know, multiple properties. That's the path that you'll go down. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, no pitch about it. Just I just I just don't believe there's anything else that can secure my my um my future like property can. Yeah. I hate the words wealth creation, all that sort of stuff. But yeah. I guess that's what sums up this space. Mm-hmm. You probably a lot of people investors are often either shares or property or ideally both. Yeah. Um. I certainly am not you know a finance expert, so I, I got to be careful. And we don't we don't advise on this stuff, but we mm. um. Yeah, we're certainly pro-property. I am, and I'll certainly keep buying. Well, to be honest, the- I've changed. I'll probably go in as hard as I can without going too risky. Yeah, um, yeah while I can, while I've got secure work and while I can keep putting away dollars. And, totally. And um, whilst mitigating risk, I'll go as hard as I can on property. Good one. Mm. Um, I reckon I know the answer to this, but what are you not doing at the moment that you want to be doing? Or what do you want to do more of? doesn't have to be a work thing. could be a... Yeah, I've got a couple of things for you. Yeah. Uh, exercise. Yep. I'm probably not working out enough. No. Well, mate, you've always been an absolute oh. like stickler for your exercise. I was, yeah. And I think it's a massive part of like personal development Yeah, is being fit and healthy and active. Yeah. Um, my When I was at Swinburne Uni, I was traveling to Hong Kong and China a lot. Yeah. And that probably broke my routine. Yeah. And I never really it. got it back. It's an excuse. Mm. So I'm probably not near as active as I'd like to be. Yeah. Um, I therefore probably don't eat as healthy as I'd like to considering, but I still have some really good habits in place. So I still get exercise in. I just don't do it like I'd like to. Yeah. Um, and look, probably... The older I get, the more I value my friends and my mm. family, and I probably don't see any of them near enough. Yeah. And I probably, I don't have any regrets, that's for sure, but I, I'd love to just keep chipping away, getting more time with friends and family. Yeah. Um, I, I just love my work, so it's very easy for me to just keep working. Mm. Um, and you've always got to be mindful of that. Totally. You know, people talk about balance. I, I, I find it irritating because balance is, it's in the eyes of the beholder. Mm. So for me, it is balanced because I love it. Yeah. So if I jump on the computer at 10 o'clock at night and work through till 2 o'clock, I got the tunes going. I'm rugged up. I'm happy. I, I just I'm loving it. People yeah. think that's odd and that's weird. Yeah. Probably is a bit weird. Yeah. But I enjoy it. So for me, it's balanced. But obviously, just in the sheer nature of that behaviour, yeah. it means that you don't get enough time with probably friends and family. So I'm mm. probably mindful of that. So exercising that probably sums it up. Um, Mate, they're two pretty good yeah, things. That's probably it. Thank you for your time. I think Pleasure. it's an interesting. Um, they're, they're good things to finish on. They're, it's we're at a time now where we're going through this COVID nineteen epidemic we're sort of all wondering where it's going to end and Mm. where we're going but I think it's for me as well like it's putting even more focus on that family and friends thing you know I think everyone's going to come out of that out of this with the similar you know because we've been in isolation but just how important it is to get around your friends and family and make sure that you're you know continuing to talk about things that interest you and future positive stuff. Oh, I think it shows why you've got to love what you do. Yeah, exactly. Because business is just, you know, your work's just one small part of life. In fact, it's probably the least most important when you think about friends and family. Yeah, totally. But um, you've got to love it. And I do, so yeah, it's tricky. But Nate, you're spot on. Friends and family are key and, and it's getting clearer as I get older, so. Good one, mate. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks, Cheers, everyone. Buddy. See you, mate.